You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our scripture for the sermon this morning is Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And after him there is a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took his hand and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Then they came, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. All right, we will be in Genesis 22, so if you have a Bible, you can open up there. Uh, On Thursday, I got together with Ben and a few of his friends, wherever Ben is, and uh, we uh, just, he just gathered some, some friends of his from the School of Mines, and we watched a movie called The Insanity of God, which is based on this book, which is the story of a missionary named Nick Ripkin. And uh, he went to some, uh, some scary places. He went to, uh, to Africa. God called him there, and they were very successful until malaria caused it to them to need to move to another place. They went to South Africa, dealt with a lot of the apartheid stuff, eventually got sent to Somalia, where they saw a few converts come to Christ and then saw those converts murdered uh, terribly right uh, um, shortly after they came to Christ and they were forced to flee Somalia. And then the worst of all things happened, and I'm just going to read a page from, from, um, from page 130 here. Um, and so he, they have a son, a middle son, who is a teenager and has severe asthma. And one night there is just... It's raining like crazy, and this house that they've just moved into, mold spores begin to uh, 
kind of stir up and, um, and his asthma um, begins to um, flare up. And so I'll just read. It's just, it's short and it's more powerful the way he writes it. So here's the, the story of Nick Ripkin and the te- most terrible thing that ever happened to him. We took the doctor's warning very seriously. We even stocked up on epinephrine pins that could be used at the first sign of an episode, but there were no further episodes over that year. Very early on Easter Sunday morning in 1997, Tim, their son, woke Ruth and me up. It was 1.30. By the time he stumbled into our bedroom, Tim was already having such difficulty breathing that he couldn't talk. We had never before used an EpiPen, but I immediately stuck one in his thigh. There was no noticeable improvement in his breathing. I gave him a second one. Nothing seemed to change. I rushed Tim out to the car, leaving Ruth with the other boys, and drove toward the closest emergency room halfway to the hospital. Tim went into cardiac arrest. The dark streets of Nairobi were deserted. I could find no one to help until I spotted a man coming out of a darkened shopping center. I quickly blocked his car with mine and jumped out to explain what was happening. I demanded that he drive my car to the hospital while I climbed into the back seat and frantically administered CPR on my son. Thankfully, Tim's heart began beating almost immediately, and he started breathing again. When, he, when we reached the hospital, the medical staff began emergency treatment for Tim. In the meantime, Ruth was making her way to the hospital. By this point, Tim was unconscious, but breathing. As Ruth, Shane, and some friends began to arrive, we huddled to pray. When we saw the doctor, their eyes told us what had happened even before they spoke. Tim was gone. He was 16 years old. Time stood still as we leaned over the bed to hold him. In that moment, something inside me died. Even in that moment, we were sure about Tim's place in heaven. That reality was certainty for us. But I was overwhelmed by my own loss. Ruth used the word resurrection later that night. I was fixed on the crucifixion. The pain was unbearable. Because there was nothing else to do, we returned to our home and began to make calls to our family members in the States to tell them what had happened on this early Easter morning horrible thing to lose a child to lose a child when you're trying to serve the Lord you're trying to walk with God you're trying to represent him well you're trying to walk by faith and your son is gone and he talks about in the book that one of the most painful things was other Christians who were saying you shouldn't have taken that risk you shouldn't have gone and so really the rest of the book is him in a sense seeing his faith rebuilt because at this point it's just devastated they're trying to serve God and he takes what means so much to them. And so their faith kind of crumbles, they leave the field, and they're given an assignment to go to all of these persecuted countries and just gain information about those who have lived through persecution and what can we learn from them. And you just, as he begins to have these stories of people who lived uh, through communist Russia and China and in dark places around the world, as he goes and interviews them, he begins to see, and the question rolling around in his mind, the question of the whole book is, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth whatever cost? Is he worth whatever price? And we have something, I think, very similar here in Genesis chapter 22. We've been walking with Abraham now for a while. God just picked him, just, uh, you, 75-year-old man and 65-year-old woman, you look maybe broken enough that I could use you and be glorified in you and promises them a child. And then they wait, and you got the ups and downs, and he reaffirms the promise, and he reaffirms the promise, and Abraham sometimes gets it right, sometimes gets it wrong. And then finally last week, we see this contented Abraham as he's got a son. 
and he's got a well and he's got a tree and this contentment of God is keeping his promise. God has given him a place. The promises are small. It's just a little boy. It's just a little well. It's just a tree. It doesn't look like a kingdom or a blessing to all nations yet, but it's starting. His faith is becoming sight. And then we have this horrible situation that God presents him with in chapter 22. So I want to look at this in four parts. Chapter 22 is God tests Abraham. The title of our message is a son is given as Abraham gives over his son. The most horrific thing that you can imagine uh, is asked of Abraham by God. And really the question is, is God worth it? Is Jesus worth it is where we'll land. That's the question I want rolling around in your head. Is Jesus worth everything? So four parts to this. We'll look at verses one and two, a heart-wrenching test. The second that we'll look at is a faith-justifying obedience. We see his faith justified in his obedience. We'll talk about that. Then in 11 through 14, we'll look at a God-provided substitute. And then in 15 through 19, a God-sworn oath is where this text will land. And then um, I'm going to answer three questions. I'm going to walk through the text. We're going to walk through that in four parts. Then I'm going to ask three questions of this story and then leave you with a couple of things to walk away with and think about and maybe process in your own heart or respond to God about. So first, let's look at this heart-wrenching text. Verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. You're going to see that again and again, that Abraham's just always available, right? This man of faith has now reached a point where he's available at the call of God. He's available at the call of his son. There's just a, there's a readiness of, in him that we have been waiting a long time. It's taken a long time for him to get to this spot. But Abraham, and he says, here I am. I'm available, Lord. I hear you. I'm ready. I respond to you. And he, meaning God, said, take your son. And this is just agonizing how this is laid out. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And maybe the hardest sentence that anyone could ever hear. Take your son, your only son, because he has disowned Ishmael. Ishmael's gone. Isaac, all of the promises, all the hopes, all the inheritance, the miraculous boy, would you give that back to me? Would you give back to me what I gave to you? Your son, your only son, Isaac, just in case you were wondering, the one you love to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I tell you. Consider all that he's been through and the contentedness that we left in chapter 21. How could God ask this? The laughter boy, his name means laughter, the joyful boy. Your pride, your joy, your legacy, your gift from God, I am asking you to give him back to me. Mount Moriah, traditionally understood to be the Temple Mount. Second Corinthians tells us that this mountain where this event's going to happen is later going to become the Temple Mount, the place of sacrifice. And eventually, as we'll see, even the place of sacrifice of the Lord Christ, perhaps. So just notice the dialogue. Abraham, the father of multitudes, that's what his name means, is now going to be asked to give the one son he has. The irony of the father of multitudes having to put to death his one and only son. So it's a heart-wrenching test. And right out of the gate, God has already given us an indication that this is a test. This is a test God is giving him. So we know, because we've already read the text, that God's not going to actually require him to follow through on this, but this is a test. This is a testing Abraham to see what's really in him. 
So then in verses 3 through 10, we have a faith-justifying obedience. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He's eager to obey God, if you can imagine. He saddled his donkey, and the two and two, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So he arises early, and he's, he's eager to obey. He's not waiting around. God has been clear. This is going to be hard. And I think he's reeling, because look at the order in which he does things. He saddles the donkey and then goes chop some wood. I think he's just in a fog. He's trying to obey, but it's just, I think he's reeling here. He's not doing things in a real logical order here, but he's obeying and he's gathering the things and he's going to do the thing God said. And on the third day, if you can imagine three days, knowing that this is what's asked of you, three days, and he keeps walking. He could turn back at any moment, moment by moment, playing out in his head his worst nightmare for three days. And he keeps taking steps of obedience towards what God's called him to do. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And just, just, do you feel your stomach kind of, oh. Yes, son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And what do you say? What if you say, what do you say if you're Abraham? Here's what Abraham, Abraham just puts it on God. This moral dilemma, this theological um, tension, this horrific, he just puts it on God. He said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. <clears throat> when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. It's almost like this is in slow motion here, right? Fast forward through the three days, you can just sort of imagine, especially as a parent, just the, the horror of those three days. And then it's like the narrative just goes in slow motion here. He built the altar there, laid the wood in order, bound his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. I mean, it's just just unbelievable what is being asked of Abraham and his willingness to obey here. Now, Isaac, how old is Isaac here? He is anywhere from maybe age 7 to age 37. We just don't know because his, his mom is going to die in the next chapter and we know that she dies when he's 37. We can just do the math. She's, he's born when she's 90. She dies at 127. So at the least, this happens before her death. We don't know how much before. I tend to think that he's in the adult category here. I don't think this is a little child. He's carrying the wood up a mountain. So Abraham, an old man, he's laying the wood on his son and his son is carrying bundles of wood. I don't know if you've ever had your kids carry bundles of firewood and stuff, but they get tired pretty quick. So Isaac, I think, is a strong young man, and I think that he is complicit in this. I'm not sure an old man could, uh, could force an 18-year-old or a 30-year-old or whatever age Abe Isaac is. He's clearly strong enough that he's the one that's going to carry the wood. 
So there's no way I don't think that Abraham can do this against Isaac's will. So we don't have a lot of other dialogue here, so we're somewhat speculating. We're just trying to do, I guess, kind of the logical thing and go, Isaac is willing to be offered up as a son. He's willing to be offered up, I think, is implied in just kind of the mechanics of this thing. Which speaks, I think, some to the, uh, the faith of Isaac as well, that he is willing to be sacrificed even as Abraham is going to sacrifice him. This would have to be the worst three-day trip of Abraham's life. The boy carries his own wood. The gut-wrenching question of where will the sacrifice come from? And God will himself provide the lamb for a burnt offering, even my son. My son, maybe my son's the offering. And here's the thing, Isaac was always God's. Abraham knows that. God provided Isaac miraculously and apparently for himself. Hebrews is going to tell us that God or that Abraham knew that this was the boy who the promise was going to come from. And so if God demanded him, God was going to give him back, perhaps via resurrection. So Abraham is just he's unsure of why this is the way it is, but he's just willing to let God do that. God will provide, I'm just supposed to obey. And then in verse 12, so here we go. Why do I call this a faith-justifying obedience? There's two reasons why I think this section is a faith-justifying obedience. One is in verse 12, God says this, stops Abraham and says, Now I know you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So this was a test. This was a test. And he has passed the test. Not because God was ignorant, but that I think there's a pattern that's being played out here. God is making his faith visible. His faith is not in a boy. His faith is in God who gives the boy. I also would say, call this section the faith justifying obedience because of what James says in chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. Here's what he says. This is, this is James, New Testament. This is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. There's Christians all over the place. And now James wants to explain to Christians how life works, how walking with God works, how faith and works relate to each other. And he uses this Abraham story to explain part of the relationship. We won't get into all of it, but one of the aspects of the relationship between faith and works is that our works vindicate or justify our faith. Look at verse 18. I think I have it on the screen here. It said, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The demons have great theology. They believe Jesus is Lord. They believe that God is real, that sin is real, that hell is real. The demons have great theology and they believe it. But the difference is, is they don't obey and honor God. So they don't have saving faith. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So here's how this works. Because now this feels like we have a tension, right? Is Abraham made right with God by works? No, that's not what he's saying. Because back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says he believed God and was credited with righteousness. So he was justified 
by God, by belief in the promise. Through belief in the promise, he was credited righteous with God. But there's no way the world can benefit from that faith, can see that faith. There's no way that there would be any evidence of that faith unless that faith moves him to obedience. So what we're talking about is we're talking about vindication before the world. He says that earlier. You say you have faith, well, I have works. I can't see your faith, but I can see what your faith moves you to do, and therefore I can see it, right? You plant an apple seed in the ground. It is an apple tree the moment it starts growing. But I don't know that until I see apples on the tree, right? So before God, when you trust in his promises, when you trust in, his Christ, when in Christ, you are justified before him. But the world doesn't know that until they see you following him when it's hard, when there's suffering and there's trials. So that's what's being talked about here is that faith is vindicated, proven, validated by works, by acts of obedience. And Abraham is the example of that. He's justified by, by, before God by faith in Genesis 15, 6. And then we see that most dramatically vindicated, proven, displayed in the willingness to even give his own son. God himself says that. Now I know. So that's how this works. Faith justified by works in terms of vindicating it. So like a final exam on a test. Does anybody have final exams coming up? Got some final exams coming up? You sit down at that test, and that test isn't actually going to teach you very much, right? It's just going to reveal what you have learned, right? The test just reveals what you have in your head, right? The test doesn't instruct, the test reveals what you've already been instructed, right? So this test is not making him right with God, but it's showing just how deeply he trusts in God and his faith is vindicated, made public, made real, validated. He's gotten the grade here in, this, in that sense. So here we have, we have him, he's willing to raise the knife. He is willing, he has walked this whole path. He's willing to plunge the knife into his own son as an act of faith before God in accordance with his word. And then we have in verse 11, the sweet substitute, the God-provided substitute. Remember, he told Isaac that God's going to provide an offering. God will provide the sacrifice. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Again, just his disposition to respond when he's called. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You are publicly vindicated before the world here. Your faith is real. Verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns or horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Yahweh Yira, or maybe you've heard it, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide, future tense. So he lifted up his eyes. This has kind of got an interesting parallel to chapter 21, where Isaac is dying under a bush and is crying out. And God hears and then opens the eyes of the mother that then is the rescue of the son that's about to die. And then we have the same God stopping the hand of Abraham and he lifts his eyes and sees a provision for the saving of his son's life through a substitute. And so we have this category now being 
presented in the scriptures of a lamb in place of a son. What God demands is a sacrifice, and he himself will provide a lamb for sacrifice. And this mountain will now be the place where the Temple Mount is built, and there's, I think, going to be, there's going to be echoes down through scripture of sons not receiving the death they deserve because a lamb will step into their place. The God will provide a means of atonement and sacrifice to vindicate his people. So again and again, now for hundreds of years, as the Jewish law comes into effect and down through the Old Testament will be the sacrifice of many lambs in this place, in place of sons who should die for their sins before God who should be put to death, and yet God is going to provide a substitute. And again and again, this hope that God will provide a substitute, a once-for-all substitute. And then we get, in verses 15 through 19, a God-sworn oath. So the conversation continues. He sees, he sacrifices this ram in, in place of his son. I can't imagine what a relief this would be for Abraham. I can't imagine the amount of counseling you would need. <laughs> you and your son might need through this moment of like, what have we just been through together? And God comforts them and with these words. An angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba, the well of oath, the place of promise. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So we have this returning back after a three-day journey, the sacrifice of a son, almost receiving him back as a resurrection and then returning so this covenant has been building that's reiterated here. It's been developing for decades, this promise that God started back when Abraham was just a young 75-year-old whippersnapper, just a young man. He's been waiting and he's been waiting. In chapter 12, there's a promise and a call to move. You, move to a land that I will show you. And I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations. You're going to have a land and you're going to have offspring and, uh, and you will bless all the nations. And then in chapter 15, there's a covenant-cutting ceremony where Abraham goes, how will I know, God, that you will keep your promise? And they cut animals in half. They have a covenant-cutting ceremony. And Abraham doesn't go through the pieces, but God does, which means that this is an unconditional covenant. God is going to bring this about regardless of what Abraham does, but there's still this call to follow him. In chapter 17, there's another covenant-cutting ceremony as God again reiterates his promise and ratifies that with a cutting ceremony of circumcise your children. And this one comes with a little bit, I'm expecting you to be faithful to me. Then in chapter one, we have a family cutting ceremony where Isaac is cut off from the family because the child of promise is going to be the heir. He's the one that you need to put all of your hope and your trust in. You must not put your trust in any other things that you can do in the flesh, like make other sons. You trust in the son of promise. And so there's this reiteration again of a family cutting ceremony. And then in chapter 22, I want you to even cut your own son. And in his place will be a cutting of an animal, a lamb, in place of a son. So that's how this, oh, that's how this 
covenant has gone with God is he has reaffirmed it, reaffirmed it, and add a layer, expanded it, made a guarantee, and this is maybe the greatest guarantee of all. For he says, by myself I have sworn. I will surely, it says over and over, I will surely bless you. Don't ever doubt this, Abraham. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you. God's using the most emphatic language that he can do. I swear by myself. God is swearing on his own name, his own character, his own life, that he will bring these things to pass. Hebrews 6 talks about this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. That's why you swear, right? Because people are untrustworthy, (laughs) right? Can't always trust someone's words, so you have them swear by something bigger, right? on your mother's grave or on your whatever, right? Something sacred, something greater, something more firm than your word. And God goes, I will swear by the greatest thing I can think of, myself. I will swear by myself that I will keep my promise to you, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. He received a son back from resurrection, from dead almost, Figuratively, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all these disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, so this is not just for Abraham, but for anyone who would follow in Abraham's footsteps of faith in the promise, faith that God will provide, anyone who follows in those steps of faith has the same guarantee of God swearing by himself that he will deliver, he will save, he will guarantee. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Like Abraham, right? He had to set his hope on a God who will somehow work out this conundrum. And we do the same. For we have a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters through the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So consider the sweetness of this. God has put Abraham and Isaac through a traumatizing situation, but now draws them close in comfort. He brings them close, comforts them, makes promises to them and gives them his approval. Verse 19, Abraham returns to Beersheba, the well of oath, a tree, a boy, a well is still in play. The promise was once again threatened. It seems even by threatened by God himself. And yet it persists. The hope of the world is still in play. The kingdom has been tested and tried and now assured, vindicated, justified. It has been vindicated by faith by means of a death and resurrection and a substitute. And we get a pattern for what the gospel is going to be, the ultimate fulfillment of salvation that will be provided later. Verses 20 through 24, just to round out the chapter, Sarah didn't read these, but... We end with a brief snapshot of Abraham of the offspring of Abraham's brother Nahor. And that's all just to explain kind of who's who in this sort of genealogy. 
And also you get a name that appears in there, the name of Rebecca. So God's going to provide a wife for this son of promise that nearly died. So the pr provision of God for, of Rebecca as a wife, which tells you that God was at work over here in ways that he never intended to put Isaac to death because he was already preparing a wife for him over here. So God is working this big plan and Abraham doesn't get to see all of it, but he's called to walk by faith in the most horrific way possible. And yet God keeps his promise. So three quick questions. Why would God call Abraham to do this? Why? Why would God, why would God do this? This is what, the, this is what the, the heathen nations do. He's in the middle of the Canaanites here, and this is what Canaanites do. Their gods demand human sacrifice. Why is God demanding this? Is not the God of Abraham different than the other gods? Isn't he greater? This child sacrifice was a common Canaanite practice, which is why Abraham knows exactly what God is saying. And I think part of the question of why God does this is one of the questions, there's several answers to this question, is do the pagans have more faith than the people of God? And you find out that no, the people, Yahweh's people, have greater faith even than the Canaanites. Another answer to the question is that Abraham is a prophet. Justin pointed this out to me last week. Uh, Abraham is called a prophet just a couple chapters earlier. And I think that's an indication to us. Sometimes God calls prophets to do weird things. He asks one a little bit later in the book to walk around naked for a few years. I, I don't think that that's a good idea for everybody, just so you know, or anybody. But just uniquely, God does these things at times with the prophets. Like, like um, um, which, man, my mind is, Mary's a prostitute. Hosea, I wanted to say Nahum, but that's the wrong. Hosea is called to marry a prostitute who he knows is going to be unfaithful to him. And so the, God often calls the prophets to put on display a picture, a demonstration, and that's what's happening here. God doesn't call anyone else to do this. Abraham is a prophet. He's modeling a picture of redemption that is unique to Abraham in this moment. So don't fear, parents, that God is ever going to call you to do this exact thing. But it also, I think, why God calls him to do this is it's a picture of what God demands and satisfies in himself. Genesis chapter 22 is painting a picture in the life of, of Abraham and Isaac in this moment of what he himself is going to do. He is going to demand a son and provide the son. He is going, we see in this passage what he demands, a sacrifice of a son, and what God provides, which is the son for the sacrifice. We're seeing that played out here so that we would know that when Jesus comes, we know what to look for and that this was always God's plan. Question number two, would God ever call someone to do this again? I already answered that. The answer is no. This is the one and only time and God himself actually thwarts the act at the end. So God is not like the pagan gods, but even if he demanded it, his people would follow him, but he's not. He's better than the pagan gods. He's better than the heathen gods. He's better than the Canaanite gods. He could ask of the same thing and his people would follow him. And yet, even when the moment of truth comes, he is not like the Canaanite gods. He is different. He is so different, in fact, that not only does he not demand sons, he himself gives sons. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, 
that whosoever should believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. Number three, how does this point us to Christ? You're probably already picking this up already. I love what one pastor who was speaking to some teenagers said. I'm just going to read what he said because it's so well said. Isaac is the only beloved son, the hope of the world, the source of all blessing. And these teenagers are kind of, you know, sort of half listening, you know, listening to this. He's trudging up the hill with wood on his back. Does that remind you of anything? It's a hill near Jerusalem. Does that ring any bells? Suddenly, it was as if someone electrocuted a girl in the front row in a good way. <laughs> she started thumping her friend next to her, really thumping her with the voice, with a kind of violence born out of pure joy. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's totally Jesus in so many ways. And then he goes and he walks them through. He says, both of these sons fulfilled promises. Both Isaac and Jesus were the only son of their father. Both Isaac and Jesus were loved by their fathers. Both Isaac and Jesus have a three-day experience. Both Isaac and Jesus are accompanied by two men. There's these two servants that go with Isaac and Abram, and Jesus is crucified between two men. Both Isaac and Jesus carry the, their own wood of execution up the hill. Both Isaac and Jesus submitted to their father. My father, who, where will the sacrifice come from? And Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But just a little bit before that, he says, my father, if it is your will, take this cup from me, not my will, but yours be done. Isaac is a picture of Jesus. Isaac and Jesus both ask a question of their father, as I just said. Isaac and Jesus were both brought back from the dead. Isaac was as good as dead and figuratively, by means of a substitute, was brought to life. But Jesus did not come down off that cross. He died on the cross. He's the substitute. He's the lamb. He's the once sacrifice for sin for all time. And notice the future tense. I think Abraham sees this because it talks about, I forget where this is, I should have wrote this down, but it talks about Abraham seeing the gospel from afar, that he could see my day, and I think it's this moment. I think it's this moment here where maybe it sort of clicks, and he names the place God will provide. Now, the whole ram, Isaac, angel interaction, that's happened already. So he doesn't name the place God has provided, he could have. But I think he names it God will provide future tense because this whole experience is pointing to something far bigger. And I think Abraham knows it and he names the place to go. God has provided here in this little way, but it's pointing to the fact that God will provide in a big way for the nations through the descendants of my son. He gets it. I think he gets it even in the name God will provide. There will be a greater sacrifice, a greater substitute, a greater lamb the Lamb of God, the offspring of Abraham, the beloved Son, the hope of the world. So, this is a story about faith, it's about a story about trials, but ultimately it's a story about the goodness of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as a provision. So, let me just conclude with this. To my non-Christian friends, man, I'm so glad you're here, and I'm so glad that you're willing to sit through a weird worship service that maybe feels a little for. Thank you. Thank you for that. It means a lot to me that you would sit and consider the things that I'm talking about. I want you to just see 
and behold, the lengths God is willing to go. This story is playing out over thousands of years and God has meticulously put this whole thing together, meticulously called a man thousands of years ago to put on display so that when Jesus would come, it would make sense. And then now you sitting here in 2021 would go, God did this for me. I deserve to be sacrificed for my sins, but there is a substitute, a son in my place, a lamb for me. Just think for a moment that if this is true, if the death and resurrection of Jesus is true, if this document really is from God, how much must God love you that he would give his son for you through Jesus Christ himself? Just ask you, if you're not a Christian, to think about that and maybe respond in faith. Turn from your sin, turn from your, your even your righteous things and embrace this Jesus Christ who went to the cross and resurrection for you. To my Christian friends, behold the lengths God is willing to call his people to go to so that the world may see a God who is worth trusting. That's really kind of where this book ends and I think where this story ends is that it ends with, yes, Jesus is worth it. Jesus was even the, worth the death of our 16-year-old son. It was worth it. It was worth it is where the book lands as their faith is restored by being around other people who, like Abraham, persevered through trials and through that showed that their faith in this God is real and that he comes through. He comes through. So my Christian friends, behold the lengths God is willing to call his people for the sake of the world, not just for you, but for the world. They need to see you suffer and sacrifice to lay your Isaacs on the wood that they may see the God who is worth everything. No one knows if our faith is real unless it's tested, tried, and vindicated. Saying you follow Jesus is easy. But willing to lay it all down because he's worthy, that's a different thing. And that's what will get the world's attention. Not our arguments, not our aggressiveness, not our cleverness, our willingness to suffer and sacrifice because Jesus is worth it. So don't linger. Respond in faith. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story. It, it goes to the depths, uh, the deepest, hardest places, and then comes out in the highest places. And so we, in many ways, have so much of what the Bible teaches in one chapter. I don't know why, God, you do all the things that you do or you call people to walk through the things they walk through. Uh, I guess we just to leave that with you. But I pray that you'd help my friends here, wherever they're at, whether they're not a Christian and just kind of looking in on this thing, or whether they're Christians and really trying to think through what it means to walk with a God who's like this. I pray, Lord, that you would do the work in our hearts and that we would respond in faith. And if we need help, to ask for help. If we need some answers, to ask the questions. To not leave here until we have been made right with you. So God, help us. Wherever that is, I can't assume all that you might be wanting to do in each individual person's heart, but I pray that you would do it and that they would respond in faith. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.